Uh, there are some people in life who are all talk. Have you met them? Uh, we meet them in all sort of areas of life, in sport, in business, in politics, at parties, in the office. Uh, people have a, who have a lot to say and who sound very impressive, who, but who at the end of the day are all talk. Uh, when Bill Clinton was president of the US, he, he played a round of golf with Jack Nicholas and Greg Norman. Uh, for the uninitiated, Jack Nicholas is regarded as the greatest professional golfer of all time. And Greg Norman was ranked world number one for 331 weeks in the 80s and 90s. Bill Clinton had a game of golf with these two guys. Following this round of golf, a newspaper report, a reporter heard that Bill Clinton had twice driven his ball further than Jack Nicklaus. Uh, but he couldn't find anyone to actually confirm the report. So he caught up with another, another golfing partner of Bill Clinton's um, who said of the president, he speaks a good game but you can't count the score as real. He speaks a good game, but it's not the real score. Now, there are people like that in all walks of life, aren't they? And sadly, even in the Christian church, people who speak a good game, but much of it is hype. It's not the real score. And people like that had become a huge problem in the church in Colossae. Uh, we met them as we've studied this letter uh, to the Colossians over the last couple of weeks. Uh, some new teachers had arrived in Colossae. They were masterful in presentation. They talked about amazing experiences that they'd had. They spoke a good game. But remember how Paul described them. Uh, just flip back to chapter 2 verse 4. You'll see there how he says they are deceivers. They are deceivers chapter 2 verse 4 with fine sounding arguments. Boy, could they talk a good game. They offered the Christian a fuller and more complete dimension of both Christian truth and Christian experience. But look at chapter 2, verse 18, to see some of the things they were saying. Chapter 2, verse 18, it seems they talked about worshipping angels. Wow! And in the same verse, chapter 2, verse 18, they went into great detail about all that they had seen, the visions they'd had with their own eyes. They spoke a good game. I met someone like that just this week. It was amazing having started preparation on this sermon. I've never met him before, but he was very keen to introduce himself to me and we'd barely met when he told me of an experience that had revolutionised his life. He told me how he became a Christian, but he was most excited about a spiritual experience that he'd had some years after he'd been converted. An experience that he said completely changed him. He talked about it giving him a joy in worship, and it transformed his ministry, he said, and in, in, in his words it gave him an anointing in preaching. Now I guess we should always be wary of people who tell us how impressive their own preaching is. But that apart, what he said certainly sounded very attractive. He said that becoming a Christian was important, but this further experience took him on to greater things. Now, what serious-minded Christian doesn't want that? He said that he'd, uh, he'd been able to dispense this same experience to others, and they, in turn, had a power and a greater ability for holy living. Who doesn't want that? See, as I was listening in, I was thinking, I want that. I had email correspondence with a friend this week who is struggling with a, a, a particular besetting sin. It's a sin that, that just keeps coming over him, that he keeps falling to, that he just can't overcome. He's been battling with it for years now. 
He is a very sincere Christian man and he wrote this in his email to me. He said, I'm sick of it. I'm sick of this sin. Now you see, when you feel that way, when you have a hatred of sin and you want to live to please Jesus, doesn't the offer of an experience of power to live differently, doesn't that sound very attractive to you? It certainly does to me. And that is exactly why the deceivers in Colossae got such a hearing. They spoke a good game. They spoke of this experience and this, this new power. But Paul says, for all their talk, it's not the real score. Look at chapter 2, verse 20. Paul writes to the Colossians, since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? These are the rules that the deceivers were giving. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body. But listen to this. They lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. That is the rub right at the end of verse 23. What these deceivers were offering lacked any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Do you see, despite their fine arguments and their words that appeared so wise, what these deceivers offered wouldn't actually change your life. See, I meet a lot of Christians who want, in the language of verse 23, to restrain sensual indulgence. Every Christian should want that. I meet Christians who want to deal with some of the issues listed in chapter 3, verses 5 to 9, that we're going to look at. I meet men who are struggling with lust. It's there in verse 5. Fighting to overcome the pull of internet pornography. I meet many Christians who are consumed with greed, also there in verse 5. Christians who feel they have to have more, bigger, newer, the latest, the state of the art. And sadly, many Christians I meet are not even trying to overcome that idolatry. And I hear with my own ears how Christian people haven't dealt with the slander that is... Uh, written about in verse 8. As they gossip, they say things about others that just aren't true. Now you see, how do you deal with these things that, that so don't belong to the life of the Christian? At the end of the day, let's realise that despite all their amazing claims, the deceivers in Colossae just gave people rules. That is the last word in chapter 2, verse 20. And regulations, which is the second word in, verses, in verse 23. Rules and regulations. But will you hear this tonight? Rules and regulations won't restrain sensual indulgence. Now you and I know that if we've tried to live the Christian life. When, like my friend, you are sick with sin and have wanted to deal with sin, you know that rules and regulations doesn't actually restrain sensuality, does it? I remember as a young Christian uh, being given a long list of rules in order to avoid sexual immorality. Uh, here are some of them. Don't sit too close to somebody of the opposite sex. The rule I was given was you should never sit more than a, a Bible's width apart. <laughs> that was the rule. And so we bought thin Bibles and turned them up that way. <laughs> uh, don't be alone with someone from the opposite sex in your bedroom. Uh, don't kiss. Or, or if you do kiss and cuddle, there was a rule about where you could and couldn't put your hands. It was simple. 
Have you heard this one? If you don't have one, don't touch it. Well, that was the rule I was given. Sorry, some of you are still catching up. It's not a very good rule because I have a bottom. Anyway, you're still catching up. Now, calm down. The point is, rules don't work. Some of those rules are actually wise advice, aren't they? Yeah, they may well keep you from sexual immorality. And for that reason, they are useful. But at the end of verse 23, chapter 2, verse 23, those rules lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence, don't they? Because you may have the rules, but you'll still feel it. You'll still want what you should not have. What we need are not rules, but a transformation deep down that gives us a desire to please Jesus in everything. See, the deceivers in Colossae used spiritual language. They claimed amazing spiritual experiences. They spoke a good game, but it wasn't the real score. Because rules and regulations won't enable us to deal with the deep and ingrained struggles of Christian living. So how can we live a faithful Christian life? Well, that is what chapter 3 is all about. It's about living a life worthy of the Lord and and that's what Paul prayed for the Colossian Christians. Before we go into chapter 3 and we're just about to get there, flip back with me to chapter 1 and uh, verse 10. Do you remember this? We didn't really have time to look at this on uh, the first week but this is a fantastic uh, uh, verse. Chapter 1 verse 10. Uh, This is what the result of Paul's prayer, what, what Paul hoped would be the result of his prayer for the Colossians. Verse 10, we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and so on. Now isn't that a great prayer? A prayer that you'd live the Christian life as you should, pleasing Jesus in everything. Question, how is that going to happen? What does Paul actually pray for? And you might be surprised. Look at verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God what to to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. How do we live as we should? Not through a vision or worshipping angels, but look at the words in verse 9, through knowledge, through wisdom, through understanding. I'm to be transformed in my living when I know truth about God. And so as Paul writes to the Christians in Colossae about holy living, he tells them now what they need to know, how they will be able to live the life that they ought to live. And if we've been here over these last weeks, it'll be no surprise to you what Paul writes at all. Everything he writes in chapter 3 is about Jesus. Because if you haven't got the message already, Jesus is everything. If you have Jesus, you don't need anything else. You don't need a further spiritual experience. Jesus is everything you need to live as a Christian. And note that Paul does not write rules for holy living in chapter 3. See, the the NIV heading in chapter 3, verse 1 and chapter 3, verse 18 are very unhelpful. Now, I'm not knocking the NIV. I use it all the time myself. I think it's a great uh, 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 translation. Uh, But do note this. When the NIV puts headings in, it's not in the scripture. It's just their heading. And this time, 
It's very unhelpful because we've just seen the false teachers, the deceivers were using rules and regulations. Paul does not now give rules. Please note that. What Paul does tell them is about Christ and about what it means to be in Christ. So just look at chapter 2, verse 20 again and see the things that Paul starts to talk about Christ. Chapter 2, verse 20, Paul writes of Christ's death, since you died with Christ, the death of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 1, over the page, we read of Christ's resurrection. Chapter 3, verse 1, since then you have been raised with Christ. Then look at the second half of verse 1. It's about the ascension and heavenly, heavenly session of Christ. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And in verse 4, Paul speaks of Christ's return, the second coming, when Christ appears. And this is the key moment in the whole sermon. If you dropped off, will you please listen to this? Paul writes about the death, the resurrection, the, the, the ascension and the heavenly session that is seated at the right hand of the Father of Christ and then the return of Christ. That's what he does in verses 1 to 4, from chapter 2, verse 20, down to chapter 3, verse 4. And then Paul says, if you're going to live a godly life, you need to know how being in Christ ties you into those momentous events. The death, the resurrection, the ascension, the heavenly session of Christ, and in the future, uh, the return of Christ. Look what Paul says to those who are in Christ. Again, chapter 2, verse 20. Since you died with Christ. Chapter 3, verse 1. Since you have been raised with Christ. Chapter 3, verse 3. Your life is now hidden with Christ in the heavenly realms. Do you see, if you are in Christ, you have had all those experiences. You have died with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. You are hidden with Christ in the heavenly realms. And verse 4. When Christ appears, you will also appear with him in glory. This is amazing. You, if you are a Christian, share in those momentous events. Isn't that remarkable? And just think how amazing that would have been to hear for the Colossians. The deceivers in Colossae talked about their amazing spiritual experiences of worshipping angels and their stunning spiritual visions. Paul says, if you're in Christ, you've reached the heights already. Verse 3, your life is hidden with Christ. And where is Christ? Verse 1, he's seated at the right hand of God. You can't get a higher experience than that. Isn't that fantastic? Christian, do you see what you are in Christ? And now do you see how that knowledge of your position, your status, transforms your lifestyle? Remember, Paul doesn't give a list of rules and regulations in what follows. Let me show you how... Chapter 2, verse 20 to chapter 3, verse 4 ties in with the rest of what he writes in chapter 3. No need to turn back to it, but remember this. Chapter 2, verse 20, he says, Since you died with Christ, so, chapter 3, verse 5, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Since you died, put to death. Do you see it's the same language? Since you died with Christ, verse 5, put to death Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Verse 8, rid yourselves of these things, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips, don't lie. You died with Christ, you see, so put those things to death. Now let's root this. Let me ask you, Christian, if you're a Christian here today, what are you struggling with at the moment? 
What sin is it that you just cannot overcome? What keeps dragging you down in your Christian life? I wonder if it's one of the things in verses 5 to 9. There's quite a list there. Look, hang on to that thing, whatever it is, whether it's in verses 5 to 9 or not. Whatever that thing is, hang on to it. And uh, later on in the service we'll be taking communion and before you come to the communion rail this evening, tell the Lord that you want to be done with that sin. Repent of it. And then as you come to take communion, say to yourself, Jesus died to save me from that sin. Remember verse 6, that sin provokes God's anger. And remember that Jesus died to deal with God's anger. And then pray, since I'm in Christ, I died to that sin. So I'm going to put that sin to death. And in the words of Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, filled with that knowledge, growing in that knowledge, the Lord will strengthen you with all power to overcome. Do you see how your status in Christ changes your life? Christian, you died with Christ, so put to death. The death of Christ, the resurrection and ascension. See how Paul writes, chapter 3, verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And then see how verse 5 picks up that same language. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. See how they go together? Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Get rid of anything that belongs to your earthly nature. How then can I get rid of this besetting sin that is in my life? Have you got it in your mind? Chapter 3, verse 1, by setting my heart on things above. Verse 2, by setting my mind on things above. I have a friend who, when he puts his mind to something, he can do anything. If he decides he'll play a musical instrument or learn a foreign language or play a new sport, he can do it. He sets his mind on it and he gets it done. That's what Paul is saying here. You, Christian, have been raised with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ. Set your heart, set your mind on things above. That is actually where you are. Then think about those things. Christian, what have you set your mind on? Many Christians set their mind on earthly things. Their mindset, the things they think about all day long, is indistinguishable from the mindset of the unbeliever. And then you see it in the way they use their gap year or what they want to achieve in their career, the material possessions they strive for, what they do in retirement. Christian, you have been raised with Christ. Your life is now hidden with Christ. You no longer live a meaningless existence. It is ridiculous to chase after the worthless trinkets of life. If your mind is set on things of this life, you will live a life that merges in with this life. But if your mind and your heart are set on things above, which is where you actually are in Christ, then you will live for the things above. And you see, that needs to happen every day as we open our Bibles and as we turn to Jesus in prayer. That first hour of the morning will set the direction of the day, won't it? And in that first hour of the morning, if our mind is set on things of the earth, then we are sure to live an earthly life. But if in that first hour of the day your mind is set on things above, you will soar high above earthly things.
why it's so important to read your Bible every day because you and me will always be thinking about earthly things and we need to have our eyes lifted above, our hearts set on things above, our minds focused on things above. Do you see, my status in Christ is the motivation to change the way I live. Not rules and regulations, but knowing truth not only about Jesus, but about where I am and who I am in Christ. I met someone recently who's fallen head over heels in love. She's my life, he said. She's everything. I'm nothing without her. He wants to be with her all the time. When he's not with her, he looks forward to the next time he is with her. He's totally smitten and totally devoted. Look at those fantastic words in verse 4. Five words in verse 4 to end with. Christ, who is your life. Or it could be Christ, who is our life. See, that's the mark of the real and genuine believer. Christ is your life. This is the mark of the true and genuine Christian family. Christ is our life. He's everything. And when that's true, we'll live a life worthy of the Lord, longing to please him in every way. Indeed, when Christ is our life, we won't need rules and regulations. Oh, we might need to be told what is right and wrong, but it won't be rules and regulations, and we won't be all talk. We'll speak a good game, and it will be the real score. Because, you see, we'll long to please him. We'll think about him all the time. We'll want to know him better. We'll long to be with him. And wonderfully, Paul tells us, verse 4, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. One day we will be with him for all eternity. Let's pray.